just have to let that sink in for a few minutes. <laughs> Scripture today is taken from the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. It says, passim, which means here and there are scattered. I'm going to read the first verse, and then I'm going to go down to the 13th verse, if you're following this along in the few Bibles, and read to the end of the chapter. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, Take care that you are not consumed by one another. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like that. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the, spirit of, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing with one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Will you join me in prayer? Oh God, through the foolishness of what we preach, through the hardness of our hearts and the hardness of our hearing, let your word be heard and your name be praised now and forever. Amen.
I was delighted to be invited by Jenny to come and preach today, disappointed that she wasn't going to be here. The last time I was here was her installation service. It was a glorious occasion, and it's good to be back. And then she told me the assignment. You have to come up with a word that begins with R, that's a theme, actually R-E, preferably. Uh, And here are the ones that have already been selected. See what you can do. So, having already accepted the invitation, I said, okay. And I thought the word redeem would be one that I would try to focus on. So we're going to consider that word in the context of this scripture from Paul. And we'll be going back and forth, as you'll see, between freedom and redemption. I think they're related, but maybe slightly different. In any case, the word redeem is rich with meaning. Here are a few of the dictionary definitions. To compensate for the fault or bad aspects of something. For example, we might say that the symphony concert was on the whole disappointed, but was redeemed by an outstanding oboe soloist. Another definition is to gain or to regain possession of something in exchange for payment. When you redeem a savings bond, you get the full monetary value of of an investment, which up to that point had only been a piece of paper with a promissory note. Here's another, to fulfill or carry out. This usually is a reference to a pledge. For example, 10 years is too long to wait for the pledge of success to be redeemed. Redeem can also have a reflexive meaning, as in to improve oneself, to take action to improve the way other people think of you or something you have done. One could say after a series of missteps, the company's president redeemed herself with one grand gesture that put the firm on a path to success. It can also apply to something someone does for someone else, as in making something or someone seem less bad. For example, Despite his poor track record on workers' rights, the candidate's endorsement by the local union redeemed his reputation among working-class voters. You get the idea. Redeem comes from the old French and Latin words meaning to buy back. In general, it means for something to go from bad to better. In its more modest definitions, it means to improve. And in its more encompassing meanings, it expresses completion or fulfillment, making whole, full restoration. These are the non-religious means, but I'm guessing you're already translating them into the religious meanings that we commonly use, that you probably have in your minds. 
The Bible is full of verses using the word redeem, redemption, redeemer. You can probably think of a few just off your head, top of your head. But perhaps the most important thing to notice about redeem is that it can refer to something done for someone else as well as something one does for oneself. It can be both a gift given to someone else and an action taken for one's own benefit. So this morning, rather than focus on verses of scripture that use the word redeem, and there are many, which more often than not leads us to a view of the cross and of Jesus' death as a ransom paid for us, I would like to think about the meaning of redeem by reflecting on this verse from Paul in Galatians. For freedom, Christ has set you free, therefore stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul's reference to freedom has both the sense of something that was done on our behalf as well as something that we ourselves are responsible for. What's interesting to me about this verse is that it, come, it contains the same dual meaning about freedom as the word redemption. That is, freedom is both a gift given to us and a quality of human life that we must work to create and preserve. When Paul says, for freedom Christ has set you free, do not then therefore submit again to a yoke of slavery, he is first reminding us that our freedom has come through no action of our own. But simply Christ has set us free, and all humankind free. It is something we did not accomplish for ourselves, but rather something given to us as a gift. Christ has done something that none of us could do for ourselves, set us free from the yoke of slavery. In Christ, we as human beings have been set free. What Jesus Christ has shown us is the deep meaning of love. Christ's death on the cross was an act of love that sets us free to live fully. In Christ's death, we see the power of forgiveness that extends to everyone, including the most despised among us. Thieves, tax collectors, hypocrites, betrayers, murderers, you name it. Because God so loved the world, the world, that God gave his only begotten son, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Christ. This is a form of our redemption. The freedom God gave us in Christ for a second chance, for another chance to be fully human, a fully human being created by God in God's image. And for some of us this Lent, this is perhaps the most important reflection that one might take, how you are a child of God, forgiven and free. No feeling on your part, whatever mess of your life that you have made up to this point, 
or at some point in the past, condemns you to death. But in Christ, you are forgiven. You are free, set free, to take your one wild and precious life and live it in joy and hope and love. But let's not stop there, because Paul, for Paul, the gift of freedom that we have been given in Christ is just the beginning. Clearly, in this one verse, which can be seen as the summation of the entire letter to the folks at Galatia, Paul is urging us not to slip back into something that is less than what we are now in Christ. Maintaining our freedom is something that we are responsible for, not Christ. It's a both and. It's a gift and a responsibility. We have been redeemed, but we are also responsible for maintaining our redemption, our freedom in Christ. Now, why would anyone want to be a slave again? after experiencing freedom. As difficult as it is for African Americans in this country to live in the midst of a society that rests on the foundation of white supremacy, is there any African American who thinks that return to actual slavery would be preferable to their lives now? I don't think so. I'm not saying this to suggest that everything is now hunky-dory in the United States in 2019. Far from it or to suggest that racism has disappeared and we are now living in a post-racial society, we're not, and it hasn't. We still live in a land of white privilege. The structures and the systems still distort our society and perpetuate violence and hatred and injustice and oppression against people of color on a daily basis, making their lives difficult, sowing fear, and distress. As white Americans, we still have a long way to go to redeem ourselves. Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation that ended slavery did not finish the work of ending slavery. It put the task in front of us as a nation. There is a real sense in which white America still seems to be expecting African Americans and other people of color to submit again to some kind of yoke of slavery. Why would they or anyone want to do that? Why would we, who are white, want that to happen? Why would anyone want to submit again to a yoke of racism, of homophobia, of misogyny, or sexual abuse? So what's Paul talking about? Is Paul referring to a very specific idea of slavery as a peculiar institution in the first century of the common era? Although human slavery is well known in Paul's time, the slave population may have been as high as 30 to 40% in that era. I doubt it. But let's think more broadly about this slavery from which Christ has redeemed us. Let's think as well about the freedom for which Christ has redeemed us. First, we must admit the tendency to submit, that the tendency to submit to a yoke of slavery is not as far-fetched as we might imagine at first, first blush. In fact, freedom turns out to be 
more difficult than at first imagined. Think of those trying to stay clean and sober after going down the path of drug or alcohol addiction. The temptation remains. The temptation is strong. Without the help of a supportive community like NA or AA, or a sponsor or a pastor or a true friend, it's almost impossible. Even so, remaining free of addiction after being redeemed is far from easy. Think of those who have spent years in prison, actual prison, who then find it difficult to re-enter their communities outside the prison walls. Think of any habit that you're trying to change. The very nature of a habit is its automation. It's what we naturally do. It's our learned behavior, our natural response. Real change isn't easy. Even when we know in our heads that the new thing that we are now embracing is better than the old thing we've left behind, it's still difficult. Think of the Exodus story. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt. They were oppressed. They were treated less than human. They had to work hard, doing boring, difficult work, manual labor, seven days a week, making bricks from straw. They had lost their identity, their dignity, their community. They were just commodities, cogs in a wheel of an ancient Egyptian civilization. But after God called Moses, and they escaped Egypt and Pharaoh's chariots and army, and God parted the Red Sea and drowned Pharaoh's army, and the Israelites then forged a golden calf and drowned and uh, rely, rather than worship and rely on the one who had saved them, redeemed, freed them from oppression. And they complained bitterly as they wandered in the desert, longing for the flesh pots of Egypt, forgetting how terrible life was. Better the devil you know than the devil you don't. They were ready to slip back into the yoke of slavery. I know we think we would never do that. Why would anybody slip back into the yoke of slavery after they had been freed? So, what is freedom? In fact, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's often described in negative terms as a lack of something that subjects us or restrains us. The positive meaning is the power or the right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. Freedom. As Americans, we are conditioned to think of freedom as having unlimited choice without interference or compulsion. No one can tell me what to do we say, I'm free to do as I please. Don't bother me with that stuff. Small government is more freedom for some. Libertarian values, freedom for some. Capitalism, freedom for some. No accountability, no responsibility, no community, no sense of the common good or of the importance of public policy where people are asked, perhaps even obliged by law, to have less so that others can have more, to give up something so that everyone benefits, not just a few, but everyone. Just the pursuit of self-interest, the ability to do whatever we want without constraint. Freedom. 
just so, sometimes people need to be able to point to something or someone that is a threat to their freedom, railing against or opposing such a, a person or an idea or a law. Because that defines for them what freedom means as a parent, might by a parent or an authority figure, an institution, a particular political party, a political idea, a policy, a set of norms, someone or something that they can rebel against. This can become what's called in psychology counter-dependence where we think we need someone else to play a certain role so that of the bad guy so that we can be the good guy. We can do that which we think is more desirable by opposing the particular thing that we despise. But counterdependence itself is a form of slavery. In fact, slavery exists in many forms. Some is systemic, human trafficking, slavery, indentured servitude, corporate towns, monetary debt burdens too large to ever pay off, perpetual indebtedness. And when we look at the systems that still exist in our 21st century world, we know that we still have a long way to go to live into that freedom that Christ has given us. As Martin Luther King said, and many others besides him, including Emma Lazarus, Fetty Lou Hamer, Maya Angelou, and others, they said, no one is free until all are free. There is a definition of freedom. Some slavery is relational, some is personal. We can be slaves to ambition, slaves to wealth creation, slaves to power, Slaves to the impossible ideal of perfection. Slaves to others' expectation, including even our deceased parents. What Paul is referring to is all of the above. Because he was thinking about the way that law functions for society, not only politically, but religiously and spiritually. Laws are established to regulate human behavior, human interaction especially to establish those rules for shaping societies and cultures. Laws set boundaries, establish penalties for breaking them. They're meant to make societies more just and fair and equitable and less arbitrary and tilted in favor of the rich and powerful. Sometimes laws do the very opposite. Reduce fairness, justice and equity and favor the rich and powerful. But laws are external to human desire and motivation. Laws don't form individual character or cover the myriad variations in human interaction. One can follow the law, never break the law, and still violate human decency. Laws don't teach compassion. They don't require empathy. They don't promote the development of a community. Whatever positive function law provides, they don't go far enough. Do's and don'ts related to human behavior serve a purpose, but they don't require us to think deeply about the purpose of human life and relationships. 
And even more to the point, laws are human creations that change depending on those who are in power and the value systems that they adhere to. I think the challenges that we're seeing in the current administration are an attempt not only to upend not only the rule of law in this country, but to substitute a whole different set of values that underlie and determine the basis of law in American society. In short, following the law is not enough, whether in ancient times or today. For freedom, Christ has set us free, us. The quote from Galatians is usually heard as being addressed to an individual, but Paul is saying this to a community, not a group of individuals. For you were called to freedom, he says, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in that single commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Many people who read Paul are vexed, <laughs> to say the least, uh, by his use of the words flesh and spirit. But if we think of these two words, flesh and spirit, in the context of freedom, and with the understanding that Paul was addressing a community then the contrast that Paul makes between flesh and spirit begins to make sense. Not in some understanding of Greek as attributes of a person, uh, as a, uh, understanding of Greek as attributes of a person's body, but as the driver of action. Flesh, spirit. What do I mean by this? Flesh is in fact an attribute of a particular person. It belongs to an individual, not a group but spirit belongs to no one. Spirit belongs to no one, but it is available to everyone. Spirit serves community, serves humanity, serves the whole earth, not some particular group or tribe or some individual. If it is Christ's spirit that animates us, then we are not animated by our own particular selfishness, self-centered desires. Look at the list that Paul put together there of examples of the works of the flesh and you'll see that he is not trying to write a new set of moral no-nos he's shown us what we do when we let ourselves be driven by our own selfishness love is not a motivator of selfishness not even self-love we love ourselves as we love our neighbors what this points to is that freedom is inextricably tied to equality, not just a equal opportunity, but the actual radical equality of persons, human beings. Radical equality of persons means that the freedom, that freedom is not an individual exercise, but a relational one. Freedom of Christ means that no one is less of a human being than anyone else that injustice and oppression are the very antithesis of freedom in Christ. When Paul says that for, for freedom Christ has set you free, he is saying that freedom is the goal as well as the means to living life in Christ. No one is free until all are free. 
We are not yet free as a human race, but that is the goal that we strive to attain. It is not a matter of you personally becoming free, but rather that each of us should use the freedom that Christ has given us to attain the goal of freedom for everyone. That is why seeking justice and resisting evil are core activities of the human Christian life. This is the second act of redemption. The first act of redemption was the gift of freedom. For some in this Lenten season, it will be important for them to embrace that gift and to be give, given to the, the new life in Christ that is given to each one of us. We have been redeemed by Christ, set free, a gift to be celebrated. But for many of us, the Lenten season should be a time of embracing this second act of redemption. It is reflexive and a corporate act. Christ has given us the gift of freedom to show us how precious and wonderful it is and called us to live into that freedom in such a way that we all are free. Friends, you are all redeemed. Together, let's continue the work of redemption. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.